the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. If you are righteous internally, and you are righteous because God declares you righteous, which is what the Bible calls justification, then it must somewhere issue out in your life. How do you know that you're really saved? One main evidence for us is that if you are saved, there will be a reflection of Jesus Christ in your life. It will evidence itself by your behavior, certainly not perfection. None of us could ever have assurance then. It is the grace of God at work in you demonstrating that you have been and are being transformed. We're not what we want to be, but we should be different than what we have been. For example, in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll obey my word. Do you do that? How about 1 John chapter 2, verse 3? John says, by this we know that we've come to know him. How can you know that you really have known him? Because you walk an aisle and pray with somebody? Because you shook the preacher's hand? Because you were baptized? Because of, How do you know? John says, by this we know that we've come to know him because we keep his commandments. where we are studying in Genesis 6 about Noah and the flood. Back in Noah's day, there was no Genesis 6. There was no Old Testament, no Bible, none of the revelation from God that we have today. So what did Noah have? Two things. The promise of God handed down from the Garden of Eden that one day the seed of the woman would provide a savior and the instruction of God to build an ark because there is going to be a flood. I've asked myself if I would walk by faith if I had only those two pieces of revelation. (laughs) I'll never be able to answer that question about my life. But as Pastor Steve continues teaching us about the faithfulness and integrity of Noah, we will see how important it is for us today to be serious about our faith walk. Noah didn't have all the information that we have about Jesus Christ. No Old Testament saint did. They had glimpses, Old Testament glimpses. But I'll tell you what Noah had. He had a promise from God that one day, one of the seeds of the woman would come who would crush the serpent's head. He understood that. And you know what? He believed that. I don't think he understood all the implications of that. In fact, I know he didn't. But he understood that his salvation was bound up in that promise. And he believed God's word. And he was saved based on that. He looked forward to the coming of Christ for salvation. Even though it may have been vague to him, we look back on the fact that Christ has come and we understand because we have the revelation from God. But he was a saved person. And the point of this verse is to say, as a saved person, he was righteous in his behavior. And this is where the rubber meets the road. 
This is where you learn to be distinct. You learn to stand alone. You learn to be different from the world that you live in. If you are saved, then you must live like a saved person. If you are righteous internally, and you are righteous because God declares you righteous, which is what the Bible calls justification, then it must somewhere issue out in your life. How do you know that you're really saved? One main evidence for us is that if you are saved, there will be a reflection of Jesus Christ in your life. It will evidence itself by your behavior, certainly not perfection. None of us could ever have assurance then. It is the grace of God at work in you demonstrating that you have been and are being transformed. We're not what we want to be, but we should be different than what we have been. For example, in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll obey my word. Do you do that? How about 1 John chapter 2, verse 3? John says, by this we know that we've come to know him. How can you know that you really have known him? Because you walk an aisle and pray with somebody? Because you shook the preacher's hand? Because you were baptized? Because of, how do you know? John says, by this we know that we've come to know him because we keep his commandments. We obey him. And the thought there of that word keep is not perfectly keep. But it's observed. There is an attitude in us that says, I am looking to the word of God and I want to observe it. When the Bible says something, I desire to obey. The thought there is I desire. How about James chapter 2? James grew up with a lot of religious hypocrites. And he says in his little book in chapter 2, where is your faith? If you have faith, then let me see it by your works. In other words, you're saved by grace through faith, but it will demonstrate itself by godly works. And James says, don't tell me you're saved if I can't see it in your life, if there's no godly works in your life. Listen, let me tell you, if you are a believer, you ought to be distinct amongst unbelievers. If you are saved, you ought to live like a saved person at business, at school, at home. Where is your personal integrity? That's why Noah was so distinct. That's why Noah was so different. He was a righteous man, saved by God, but also lived a righteous way. And I exhort you to do that. I exhort you to live differently. That's what Jesus meant about being salt and light. That's what Paul meant about shining forth in a darkened world of sin, holding forth the word of truth. You may be distinct. But not only did Noah live righteously, he also preached about righteousness. Second Peter chapter two, verse five says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. It appears to be that Noah was preaching for 120 years because God had said that there's going to be a flood and 120 years. My spirit won't strive anymore with man. And so it appears that Noah was working on this ark for about 120 years and he was preaching the same time. Those who stand alone in the midst of a wicked generation must have a commitment to the word of God, to proclaim the word of God, not only to live it, but to speak about it. You see, in the midst of a wicked generation, Noah told people about God's righteous standards. He didn't just live it. He spoke about it. That's incredible. He spoke about it. He told them about God's standards of righteousness. And the only way you have credibility, and watch this, The only way you have credibility in proclaiming anything about righteousness is that you live it yourself. I wonder if some of us are hesitant to evangelize and we're afraid of this because our lives are not what they should be. Because if we witness to somebody, 
they may look at us and think, what a hypocrite you are. And so we're silent, our guilty silence. And I wonder if some of that is due to a lack of godly living. Certainly not the case with Noah. Those who stand alone must have a commitment to obey the word of God at all costs. I'm reading these days the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. And the major message I keep getting from Psalm 119 is that the psalmist feels like he's up against the wall, that all of his enemies are surrounding him. He's walking with the Lord, but everybody hates him. I was reading this morning. He said, I'm small and I'm despised, but I delight in your word. I thought that's really good. I think this man walked alone. And in the midst of walking alone, he constantly said, but God's word is everything. God's word is everything. That's what I think Noah was like. Lord, nobody else understands. I'm preaching this. I'm building this ark for about a 100 years. Nobody believes me, but I'm going to live for you, and your word is everything. How do you stand alone? First of all, it helps have a godly heritage. Not always necessary, but helps have a godly heritage. Secondly, righteous behavior. You've got to be committed to righteous behavior, even if nobody else is. Even if your favorite radio pastors and authors and spiritual leaders fall spiritually, you've got to be committed to standing alone regardless of what others do. There's a third spiritual quality that Noah had, and that's not only godly heritage, righteous behavior, but also he was blameless, the Bible says, in his time. Verse 9, it just says blameless in his time, in his generation. The thought here seems to be that Noah was not perfect. It says in some version he was perfect. It's not talking about absolute sinless perfection, but the thought here is that Noah was without blemish in a morally corrupt world. In other words, it's not that he was sinless, but that he was blameless in the eyes of his contemporaries. It's talking about his testimony. The thought is that he had a consistent testimony amongst his peers. I think that's the gist of it. In fact, the Hebrew word for blameless is related to another Hebrew word for integrity. So when you think of this, you think of integrity. Noah, even though others didn't believe him, even though they probably thought he was nutty, probably called him Nutty Noah. He's building an ark on dry land. Think about that. For a hundred years. Even though he's doing that, Noah had integrity and a good testimony. He's probably was one of these people that they didn't agree with him, but they respected him because they knew that he practiced what he preached. Now, how can we learn from this? How can we be like Noah and stand alone? I'll tell you this. It's be concerned about your testimony. How things are perceived are very important. It's important to have integrity before God, but it's also important to have integrity before people. Don't do foolish things that might be misunderstood. Be aware of how your actions, your attitudes, and your words are being perceived. Because once you say the wrong thing and ruin your testimony, you can't get that back. You can't get those words back. You can't get that action back. You can apologize, you can ask forgiveness, and that's the right thing to do. But the damage is done. The damage is done. Your reputation is soiled. We need to make sure that we put our testimony for Christ above other things. I am very, very impressed with the words of Proverbs 22.1, which says, A good name is to be more desired than gold. What is your priority? What's most important to you? The writer of Proverbs said that, you know what? Money's not going to turn my head. Nothing's going to turn my head. And the psalmist, as I'm reading in Psalm 119, says he loves the word of God above silver and gold. He says even fine gold. What is your price? Do you have a price that you would compromise the word of God and ruin your testimony to get more money, nicer home, better car, more security? The issue is integrity, and the issue is your testimony before a lost world. I exhort you to make sure that it's blameless.
without blemish. Because once you've lost your good name, you cannot get it back. So what have we seen about Noah? First of all, he had a godly heritage. Secondly, righteous behavior. Third, he was blameless in his generation. The fourth spiritual quality is found in verse 9, is that Noah walked with God. I mean, that's a tremendous statement. Reminds us of his ancestor, Enoch, who walked with God. Noah, it just says, walked with God. What does this mean? This means that Noah had fellowship with the Lord through prayer. And you can't say the reading of the word, but through and however God communicated to him. It could have been directly. It could have been through dreams. It could have been through visions. He didn't have the written word. But Noah's life and behavior were distinct from those around him because his fellowship was with God. Let me just tell you a great principle here. You will never stand alone before people unless you stand alone before God. You will never know what it is to stand alone unless you have spent time with God on a regular basis, being alone with him in his word, in prayer. This is the foundation for godly living. This is where it's at. It is amazing how few Christians spend time in the word of God. It is amazing I was reading, and I think I have these facts correct, that a poll was taken, the average pastor spends seven minutes a day in prayer. I think I have that right. Now, if the average pastor spends seven minutes a day in prayer, what must the average parishioner spend in prayer? Folks, if you want to be godly, it takes a little discipline. It doesn't just happen. Our men on Friday mornings and Wednesday nights are studying a great book, Disciplines in the Christian Life. And several years ago, we studied Disciplines of a Godly Man. And the message is over and over and over again, is that in the power of the Spirit of God, you must be disciplined. You must be disciplined. You must cultivate the discipline of communing with God. Otherwise, you will never find the time to do it or you'll be so sporadic. Spirituality doesn't just happen. It doesn't float down from heaven. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen unless you discipline yourselves. Our men know this, but let me show everybody this, the men in that study. First Timothy chapter 4. You ought to memorize this. You ought to meditate on this. It ought to be a life's verse to many of us. First Timothy chapter 4, the end of verse 7 says this. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I want you to see that. That's why I want you to turn to it. I could have just spouted it out like that, but I want you to visualize it and see it. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Unless you discipline yourself, you will not be godly. You will not be godly. And that means walking with God through prayer and the word. How much time, honestly, do you spend in the word and prayer? How much Bible intake do you really take in? How much do you have? Is it you're thinking that Sunday morning is it? You're in bad shape because you're only getting one meal a week. That's it. You're famished the rest of the time. And I'm spoon feeding you. You got to be taking that in yourself. How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend really talking to the Lord? How much time do you spend in meditating on God's word? How much time do you spend in really taking it in, not only reading it, but studying the Bible? And, you know, you have opportunities here to be involved in studies. I think one of the great things that we have is our ladies' Thursday morning Bible study because not only do they get a message from one of the ladies, but during the week they're studying the Bible themselves. That's where it's at. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. If you want to stand alone before people, you got to stand alone with God. Now, after telling us about Noah and these godly character qualities of verse 9, Moses briefly mentions the sons of Noah in verse 10. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
He doesn't speak about them now. We'll learn more about them later. Are they important? Yeah, everyone in this room, each person in this room is descended from one of them. There are grandpappies. One of these three guys. They are rather important, and we'll deal with them at a later date. So Noah and his sons are presented to us in this passage, with Noah being the exception as uh, corrupt earth. The earth is corrupt, Noah's an exception, and his sons are lumped together with him. They're going to be preserved. We read in this, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence, and God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so there's a contrast here. Noah, and then his three sons, and then the earth. And I don't think we need to say anything more about this at this point, because we've spoken already about it in previous verses. But because the earth was so corrupt, and because it was so violent, God's plan was to destroy it and to preserve Noah. And so as we move along in chapter 6, God gives specific instructions for Noah about the ark and the animals and all of that, but we're not finished yet looking at Noah's godliness because his response to God's initial instructions are very, very helpful for us. And you know what that fifth spiritual quality that Noah had, which is tremendous, is he trusted God. Just mark that down and we'll get to it after we go through this section. Let's read verses 13 through 21. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come upon me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive." And as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. In these verses, God reveals his plan to Noah. He's going to destroy the world, but not Noah and his family. Now, in order to save Noah and his family, God tells him to build an ark. I want to deal with this a little bit, and in weeks to come, we'll speak more about this. But some of us might have the impression that this is a ship. It's like a cruise liner. No, it's not. This was more like a barge. Think of a barge, a barge-like structure that's called an ark. It was not built for speed. It was built to just survive, to float. In fact, the Hebrew word for ark appears only one other time in the Bible, in Exodus, where it is the word used for the small basket that Moses was put in. Baby Moses was put in that small basket. That's the thought here, like a barge. It was made of gopher wood, which is probably cypress wood. Divided into rooms, it was waterproofed, we're told, by covering it with pitch inside and out. And what about the size of it? 
The size was, and I'm basing this on a cubit being about 18 inches long. Some will say, and it depends, different cultures had different measurements for cubits. Some said it was about 17 and a half inches. So let's say about 17 and a half, 18 inches. The size was about 437 feet long. That's big. That's about one and a quarter times the length of a football field. That may help you. 73 feet wide and 44 feet high, and it had three decks. Now, this was huge. In fact, it wasn't until 1858 that a vessel of greater length was constructed. This was huge. Now, why was it so big? Because God's going to fill the ark not only with Noah and his family, but with animals and with food. And this was done to continue species. Now, they came in two by two, it says. But also, if you look at chapter 7, verse 2, it says, You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. So in addition to two by two, apparently there were three pairs plus one extra. Uh, that one extra probably was for sacrificing later after they got on dry ground. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment because this has been criticized by scoffers who say, you know what, it's impossible. It's impossible that every animal came on that ark. Just impossible. Well, for one thing, we answer that by saying not every animal came on that ark, but every species of animals. In other words, let's just take dogs. You didn't have 200 different varieties of dogs. You had probably like a wolf-like thing. I mean, you didn't have dachshunds and pugs and poodles and things like that. You had like a wolf kind of thing. And in that species, you had all the gene pool for those later animals. But I want to read to you from Henry Morris, who is a scientist himself, and how he explains this. In fact, I'm reading a book now by John Whitcomb called The World That Perished, in which he's giving some not only biblical but scientific evidence for the validity of the scriptures. But listen to what Mr. Morris says. He says, in these verses are contained the instructions for the preservation of the animals in the ark. A male and a female of each kind were to be brought into the ark to keep them alive. The scope was quite comprehensive, two of every sort. God had a purpose for each created kind, so he intended that all the kinds be preserved through the flood. In addition to this general rule, seven animals of each clean kind, evidently those intended for use as domestic and sacrificial animals, were to be taken on board. Most land animals are small. He says they're small. So this did not by any means represent an impossible task. Authorities on biological taxonomy estimate that there are less than 18,000 species of mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians living in the world today. This number might be doubled to allow for known extinct land animals. And then he puts in parentheses, that is, those known from actual fossil records, not the imaginary transitional forms that never existed except in the minds of evolutionists. Allowing, then, for two of each species, there might have to be a total of about 72,000 animals on the ark, say 75,000 to allow for the five extra animals in each clean species. Since, as we have already seen, and I haven't read it to you, but those who have read this book know that he has already explained this. Listen to this. Since we have already seen, the ark could have carried as many as 125,000 sheep. He's already proven that, and you can borrow the book if you want to verify that. And since the average size of land animals is surely less than that of sheep, 
It is obvious that no more than 60% of its capacity would have to be used for animals. Actually, it would have been less than this since the biblical kind is probably considerably broader than that of the arbitrary species category of modern biology. There were a few large animals, elephants, dinosaurs, giraffes, etc., to be carried on the ark, but many more small ones, mice, robins, lizards, frogs, etc. Even the large animals were probably represented by young, therefore small individuals, since they had to spend a year in the ark without reproductive activity and then go out to repopulate the earth. And he goes on and on to say about some other things concerning that. So I just want you to see that this is not an impossible situation. This is very, very credible. Not to mention all the insects that would have been just tiny on there. Someone said, why didn't Noah just swat the two flies coming in before (laughs) pester us? But I don't know. God has a purpose in that, to build our character while we're eating. They just hang around. Now, the point that I want you to see is really found in verse 22. It's Noah's response to this. What God told him was incredible, just incredible. He's hearing this for the first time, and here's his response. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Did you hear about the time Noah's wife came to her sons one day when they had been on the ark for a while? She said, boys, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that for supper tonight, we're going to have all of your favorites. Those delicious melons I've been saving, as well as pineapple, snap peas, blueberries, strawberries. The boys got all excited because those were their favorites. Then Ham said, wait, what is the bad news? To which his mom replied, well, boys, your dad wants to water ski this afternoon, and you are going to have to row the boat. Okay, I doubt that happened. But as we came toward the end of today's program, Pastor Steve described the ark for us. It certainly wasn't built for speed, much less water skiing. But it was built for stability and to hold a lot of animals. We will continue to learn more about that on our next verse-by-verse program with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. I hope you can join us then. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.